If the world hates you, remember that it hated me first. The world would love you as one of its own if you belong to it, but you no longer are part of the world. I chose you to come out of the world, so it hates you. Do you remember what I told you? A slave is not greater than the master. Since they persecuted me, naturally, they will persecute you. And if they had listened to me, they would listen to you. They will do all this to you because of me, for they have rejected the one who sent me. They would not be guilty if I had not come and spoken to them, but now they have no excuse for their sin. Anyone who hates me also hates my father. If I hadn't done such miraculous signs among them that no one else, that no one else could do, they would not be guilty. But as it is, they have seen everything I did, and yet they still hate me and my father. This fulfills what is written in their scriptures. They hated me without cause. But I will send you the advocate, the spirit of truth. He will come to you from the Father and will testify all about me. And you must also testify about me because you have been with me from the beginning of my ministry. I have told you these things so that you won't abandon your faith, for you will be expelled from the synagogues, and the time is coming when those who kill you will think they are doing a holy service to God. This is because they have never known the Father or me. Yes, I am telling you these things now so that when they happen, you will remember my warning. I didn't tell you earlier because I was going to be with you a while longer. But now I am going away to the one who sent me. And I am going away to the one who sent me. And not one of you is asking where I am going. Word of the Lord. You may be seated. The kids are invited to Kids Church with Emily today. I am the true vine, and my father is the gardener. That's what Jesus proclaims for us today in this passage. As many of you know, we've been walking through the Gospel of John from the beginning of the new year up until uh, Easter Sunday, and, and we found um, in that first half this Jesus doing these signs, Jesus teaching, um, Jesus doing uh, miracles and caring and teaching the crowds and his disciples. And what we find now in the second half is that Jesus is in the upper room instructing his disciples. So often Jesus talks to crowds, talks in public. Uh, in the other Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, he's often doing that. And there are these times where he withdraws and speaks intimately to those who are connected to him, to those who will abide in him, to those who will make their home there. And so, too, that's what we find in this passage. Now, um, last week, 
um, sort of started that sermon. And these are these upper room things that lead to the end. We're in the final hours of Jesus' life before his arrest. Actually, the last passage ended with, come now, let us leave, as if they're on the way to the arrest, the trial. And so this is this moment where these things begin to come to a head, and it's um, Jesus' final words for his disciples. Now, it was common in, in ancient literature around this time that um, as somebody was dying or they were facing something, they would, in some sense, exclaim their life in the way that it would leave a pattern for their disciples or followers to live into. It's in one of the Greek thinkers, now I wish I could remember his name, it's not Plato or Socrates, but one of the other ones who says that in his final speech, is like, I'm going to lay out this pattern for you. It's a similar thing we find with rabbis too, is that this last time is this last time to sort of hear from them what is the pattern of living that having followed them, you should live into. It's what Jesus does in this final sermon, is he, he begins to exclaim to them what is that pattern. Now, I think it's important to remember, and it'll come up maybe once or twice today, that this sermon begins with an act that is revealing of the act in which he's going to do in the foot washing. Um, Kim and I talked about it, because Kim's always loved that passage, and I've always found it overtly moralistic. Um, but this time, preaching to, through it, because it's got that, um, you know, just serve one another, um, which is like, strikes me as one of those things that my mother always told me to do, and I didn't. Um, but that, that, that's like, just be kind, just do this. But actually what Jesus is exclaiming there is something greater than just that. First off, he's living into the gospel and that he's going to do. I've made you clean. He says that again in the reading for today. That he is cleansing those people whom he's going to send into the world. It's not just a moralism. It's not just this um, small fact, but it's this actually great thing that Jesus is doing, this strong thing, not this sort of weak thing, which I think we often think of at those instances of, of sort of that moralizing. Um, uh, and then the other thing is, is even the moralizing is a bit different than what I always remember it as. It's, it's these things that we think we know, and then we don't really take the time to get to know them. Um, and so I always thought, like, yeah, I know that one. Go forth and, and wash feet and do this. But it's actually this, this way of saying is that we've been freed to be in service in a new way because the one whom was God and light and life went that low, so too can we. From the song that Rachel sang, from that fear of serving others, deliver me, O God. Um, what if God became flesh and wash feet. And that's the one you want to abide in and be in. We've been rescued from so many fears in that act. Because a new pattern has been enabled. And so it's not just the moralism of doing it. It's also the reality in which things have shifted utterly in what God does in Jesus Christ. Things have shifted greatly. Okay. Now I see what's going on. The back one is not moving, but the front one is. So that's why I keep on the slides. Nobody else can see the back one except for me. But um, I'm like, what's going on? Um, I'm stuck in a time loop. Um, aside from that, um, that's sort of what we find in this upper room scene. And so what, what the Gospels do, and John did it several times with the feedings, is, and we miss this if we move too fast, is they show us in action what they're going to show us in words. 
They show us in the, in the way in which Jesus does something. And then it's written out in a, both in an action picture and then in a word picture. Um, and I think that helps us become better readers of the gospel when we begin to slow down and notice that, that, that that instance of Jesus washing the feet is then what he's going to exclaim in these next several passages, is that he's going to, to lead out in. And that's, that's sort of where we left him last week, in which he um, had comforted the disciples and instructed them on the way, um, and that way of life in which he is enabled. And then he promises the Spirit at the end of the last fast, or, uh, passage, this advocate, this counselor. In the Greek, um, paraclete is the word in the Greek for the spirit. Uh, um, You might see it some places. Um, But what's interesting, that means come alongside almost in a legal sense. That what he promises us is this one that will come alongside us and advocate. That's where the translation where we see advocate also comes in often, or comforter, um, that he's this one who's going to be with us. Now, what I did today is I had Chris read it in two halves. Because one half is this sort of yes that we're used to. Well, there's two types of people, I guess. There's people who are used to the yes of the gospel. Abide with me. Know my love. This is the pattern I set for you. Serve, become greater in the way that you love one another. Um, These are the things that I've called you into. This is the joyous news of the gospel. And it even says in there that the joy will be complete and this glory will happen. And a lot of us are like, amen. And then he picks it up in the next verse and he's like, so you'll be hated everywhere you go. Um, um, And there's this great yes and no that comes in this scene. There's this yes to this life that we find in him. There's this yes to this um, pattern. There's a yes to this abiding in this true and real vine. But that what comes with that is that we are now rooted elsewhere. We're going to be rooted in a different spot. The book of Acts um, in the King James, <laughs> or in the ESV, I believe, there's this instance where they're in Ephesus, I believe, and they say of the disciples, they are literally turning the world upside down. This is not good news. This is one of the reasons they persecute them. What happens in this half is to say that we're abiding and remaining, belonging to a different sphere, different pattern, different way of living in the world. And when we go forth, part of the problem then is, um, in the book of Acts, just as an aside, is the people who sowed the little statutes of their God were fearful that they might go out of business. Christians didn't smash them. They invited people in a way of life, in a different way of seeing, that wasn't dependent upon the... um, Uh, small gods of the region, but into a larger and greater story, into a different way of being. These people are literally turning the world upside down. It's not always welcome news. And I think sometimes it shows how far we've come as Christians, that we think this will be welcome news. Now, I, a couple Sundays ago, I said that we shouldn't one-up Jesus. They actually use, he uses language that I could use, which is if it happened to the master, why wouldn't you think it would happen to you? As Jesus is going to his cross, as if as this is the pattern he's going to walk, if this is the pattern of life he's going to live, so too it comes for us. We often want to live in denial of that reality and of that fact. 
And it's changed a bit. I mean, we'll, uh, we'll get to this, I guess, in the course of the sermon, although it's on my mind now, so um, I'll say it, is that um, it used to be that to live the gospel life in the West, to receive friction for it, you had to do great things. You had to at least ascend more. You see um, this in Martin Luther King and the Civil Rights Movement. You see it in the reform movements throughout the church and church history. You see it in people who took radically the um, human dignity and the slave trade, that these were things in which, uh, which riled the world in some ways. And it was predominantly a Christian world or a world on a Christian hangover or whatever you want to say. It thought it was Christian, even though it's very hard to have a Christian world. Today, you'll see news stories of people who went to a church where the pastor eight years ago said something not entirely political correct, and that's why they need to resign their position. I think it's with the rugby league in Australia. To find yourself on the opposite side of the world's anxiety and trials is a much smaller margin today than it used to be. You had to walk, you had to march, you had to go. We've Googled you and found out where you've been, and we don't even know if you've said anything related to it. But this comes for you. And I think that's why this is a good passage for us. Because as as we're, I think, slowly growing aware of it, we're moving to a different era in which things will be different in some ways. Or, or maybe they never were different, but the ways in which they happened will be the same. I mean, um, if it happened to the master, how much more would it happen to the servants? It was one way, and now it's a different way. You hate to say that this is new, um, because that, that, um, it's the pattern it's always been. Um, the first thing that Jesus references in the sermon, um, uh, Dale Bruner calls it homemaking, and he has a sense of sort of which fruit comes out of it, this abiding sense. I was reading an article this week that talked about one of the confusions of living in the late modern world or early postmodern world, however you want to define it, is that we live with different uniforms we put on at different times, and it makes it hard to establish a coherent self. What the writer meant is that, like, we go to work, we go to our uh, families, we go to various avenues, um, sports teams, fun things, this, that, and the other. And what happened in the disjointing of the modern world is we become sort of these people who have to put on different selves with each realm we enter into. Um, it used to be, this was early, the people I used to lead in youth ministry who are now, you know, in their 30s, this was that. But I think it's become more evident that this is a lot of what we struggle with in the modern world, is that we're always sort of having to place ourselves with different things on and different ways of interacting and being. And what happens is, if, first off, it's exhausting. Um, uh, we have a hard time making and maintaining sort of this coherent self. And so what Jesus, I think, offers us in this passage is one place to abide. One place to be a part of the vine. One place to be with him. And what's interesting is that here, life does not come from us, but flows through that. So often, and 
this is the second temptation, I think, of the late modern world, is the answer of how are you going to make yourself? How are you going to decide which uniforms to wear, which places to place yourself? How are you going to create your own coherent self in the world, knowing that it's pretty much a failing task? Because it shifts all the time. It's continually sort of rotating around like that. And so what Jesus offers at the beginning here is, I am the true vine, which is not just a statement about truth. It's actually not really that at all. It means more like I'm the real vine. I'm the real place where life will come from. This other kind of life. Now, if you're like me, you found that the uniform changing and the desire to make your own life, which still resides in me as best as I try to get rid of it, fails. There's nothing external to you to bring it to to fruit or function. Um, And so what we're offered here from Jesus is this place to reside, to be, in which it is not up to our own selves to make these things come. We don't make the fruit through our own effort, but in our abiding, in our being, and resting in that place. It was uh, Raymond Brown who, when talking about this passage, um, this first half, uh, talked about how, so you guys are right, I'm not. Um, uh, There's something about being willing to be embraced in it. You'll see it unless my words are in you later. Um, But there's this way in which um, it's not just saying, I'm going to go and abide in that one. I'm going to go remain in this one. I'll be part of the vine. It's being willing to have that be in you. Now, when I read that, um, uh, that thinking about what does it mean to be welcomed, to be embraced, um, like it's not a natural thing, I think, for us. It could be worse for men in some ways or something like that. But this idea that like what I'm being offered is for something to hold me. It's not news I I rapidly sign up for. (laughs) It's like, no, I'm good. Um, uh, I don't know if you've ever seen the guy with the free hug sign. I'm like, what a terrible thing. Um, Somebody should arrest him. Um, It's a joke. (laughs) But it's related to this passage in that sense of like, it's a place that will hold you. It's a place that will be in you. So what Jesus offers them here is this way to sort of be in this true vine. Now, it's worth noting that, uh, as Rachel read to us from Psalm 80 this morning, the vine is rich imagery in Israel's history. Jesus is um, building up an original teaching out of so much teaching about the divine, or about the vine in Israel's history. That, that what does it mean that God has made a vineyard, that he has set it there, that he has cared for it, intended for it. And then at times, like in that psalm, there's a place in which the vineyard has gone into disrepair. God's face has been withdrawn from it, normally because Israel's embraced idolatry or other means, which is again, I mean, it's, uh, it's not hard to see ourselves in that, right? Like, we embrace other things, and that leads to the disrepair of what we're supposed to be. St. Francis, I love uh, the story of him, is that when he, Jesus appeared to him, um, he said to, he's in a broken church, and he said, rebuild my church. 
Um, and so St. Francis, who was wealthy at the time, went about rebuilding that church, but what the message actually meant was that he was to go out and rebuild the church that, as it had fallen into disrepair sort of universally through his Franciscan mission. Point being is that what happened to Israel in, in that pulling away that leads to the vines collapse also happens to the church. Um, we can't just throw them under the bus and say, we've done it better. Um, uh, it's typologically us as well. And so when Jesus says he is the true vine, he is the real vine, he's placing himself as the person whose Israel's story and faithfulness that should have been is incarnate in him. He is the real one who lives that. And so what they pray there, um, what, we, what we heard Um, restore us, O Lord. Make your face shine upon us. Becomes for us a prayer as well. Does it mean to say to God, restore us? Because I want to spend most of my energy trying to restore myself. um, And it just never works. And so that outside restoration that comes from God and this abiding in the vine um, love and heart, I'm trying to think of where uh, the next passage takes us to, is um, I'm the vine and you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If you do not remain in me or like a branch that is thrown away and withers, such branches are picked up and thrown into the fire. If you remain in me and my words, words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. This is to my Father's glory that you will bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be your disciples. This is the second part of this teaching in which Christ is talking about how um, there's this way in which God sort of cares for the vine. He comes and trims it. You do not remain in me. You are a branch that withers, um, a branch that falls away. The branch that, that hurts. Um, I'm trying to think. This is the one I was looking for. Um, the cutting. Just the one thing is that the, that the cut, cutting the branches and being made clean are the same Greek root word. Um, so you would see it in Greek. This idea is, is that God cleans the branches. You are already clean because of the words I've spoken to you. Going back to that foot washing scene, he's saying that you are already the cleansed ones because of what I have done to you. Remain as me as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself as much as we try. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. There's this way in which we're called into this remaining of being in that spot. The next teaching is about love that we had talked about before. I'm trying to think. Um, This is William Temple. Abide in me, love one another. These are not two things, but one with two aspects, where the former is occasionally to the latter. To do this is to participate in the Holy Communion. Um, These are not two separate teachings, abide with me, love one another, but they are one thing that makes the life flowing out of what we're called into in Christ. And the reason why I like that he says Holy Communion, I won't spend any time on this today, but there is some temptation to read this scene as if it's referring to communion. Vines make wine. Um, And much of the early church's interpretation has sort of tried to go to that spot, this way of saying that we are to remain in him. 
But there's this love passage first that our joy may be complete. Um, joy is the U.S. It, it doesn't say this in the Declaration of Independence. It says the pursuit of property, I believe. But then we take it as life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Uh, and I read a great article several years ago that it promises us the pursuit of happiness, which when you think about it, doesn't sound like great news. <laughs> you will have the right to pursue, but never be fulfilled. Joy has a different connotation to it. It's not something we pursue, but shows up organically in our abiding. That as we stay in these commands, as we have this, that this joy might be complete within us. So often I try to think of the Christian life as happiness, but what we're called into alternatively is joy. Now, what happened in this passage is at first there was that, that call to remain, to abide, to be in the true vine. What happens next is a like command compared to that the world will hate you. But this greater love has, has no one than this, to lay one's life down for one's friends. Greater love has no one than this, to lay one's life down for one's friends. It's one of those teachings that I think um, comes so easily. It's one of the ones that stays foreign. First off, uh, Flannery O'Connor had a, a young girl in one of her books who said that she could never really um, uh, be a saint, but she could be a martyr if they killed her real quick. Um, which captures, I think, part of this passage. I could die for one of my friends, but to go and help them paint their house, no thanks. That's like, if you know me, I'll, like, I'll help you move. I'll help you with plumbing and remove water from your basement, but painting your house, I'm like, it's judgment on you if you ask me to do it because I'm not very good at it either. But anyways, um, this laying down, this continual laying down that makes love. Greater love is this than that, that we can lay down, that we can wash each other's feet, that we can do this, is um, a pattern. It's not a one-time thing. Those of you who are married can, can think of this quite well. As it's, uh, you know, I took the garbage out today does not qualify for taking out the garbage for all time. You have to lay down into those places. And it's... Um, as I alluded to earlier, one of my past lives was as a youth minister, um, which is a weird way to think about that. But um, the, uh, for some reason, there, there had been this Silver Ring thing conference in our town, which was, um, uh, if you're not familiar with this, sort of a virginity ring conference. And I did not take my youth group because I thought I should go first because I had heard that they were kind of terrible in sort of their moralism. And I went, and it was kind of terrible in its moralism. Um, so I went so that I could find out for you've been. Yes, okay, they are kind of terrible in their moralism. Um, uh, and, and kind of um, not fair. Uh, there, there was this, at one point they were like, girls, we're going to give you real advice. Um, don't dress this way. And guys, don't let your hugs linger too long. And I was like, in this pornified, violent world, that's our real talk that we're going to give them to go and live forth uh, in faith and life. Um, there was lots, I mean, 
not to undercut everything there, but there was a lot of like, but they took this verse, um, and they didn't, I don't know if they were consciously aware they take this word, verse, but they said, there's no greater thing you can offer somebody than, in some sense, your virginity on your wedding night. Um, and so I initially was repulsed by that. I thought that was terrible advice, first off, because it's to lay down your life for one's friends. The second thing, um, now I'm thrown off because uh, um, I didn't realize somebody that, that anyways, I just want to say one thing is that chastity is a better goal than virginity on that. Virginity is a physical state, whereas the church has raised up chastity as the virtue. So if you say um, virginity, you've undercut a lot of people through whom nor circumstances of their own, that's not a possibility. Whereas if you say chastity, you have some hope. The other thing about making virginity a virtue, and this is, a, I'm saying this is a joke, and I think it's very funny, but um, is if you make virginity a virtue, my one piece of advice was, you make a whole lot of teenage boys virtuous by the fact that they haven't found anybody desperate enough to sleep with them yet. So it cannot be the virtue. Um, just because you haven't found someone doesn't mean you're virtuous. Going back to this point, what I think was encoded if they had thought about it, though, was there's lots of laying your life down to make it to that state. There's lots of choosing not to go into certain parties and places, to go to that wedding day with a different, with let's say chastity. There's lots of choosing what you offer yourself up to on the internet, or to with other places, or crass humor, or videos, or movies, or life that can enable you to live. And so while I thought that that was uniquely terrible that day, as I thought about it more, if they had thought about it, they could have said, that part of the path you're being called into today is a path of laying down yourself for your future self. And not just for your future partner, for your future self, your future relationships, your future friends. You might actually find that you're inhibiting and living into a better space if you choose to live in that way. So as much as I thought that there was not good things happening there. I could at least put a spin on this thing today to say that there is something in, in that laying down. And, and I use that as an example because I think it's relevant to us is that we can enter into this laying down ourselves today. Not always asserting that we're right. And it's because, and this is that I've always missed, is because a new path has been opened to us in what Christ has done. So often this advice is separated from the metaphysical, ontological, huge reality that something has happened in Jesus Christ. Rather, it just becomes moral advice. We have the freedom to live into this path. The last thing on this is, this is a quote on the back of the bulletin, love and action is a harsh and dreadful thing compared to love in dreams. This is from the Brothers Karamazov. Love in action. Laying down is a harsh and dreadful thing compared to the love in dreams. So I need to get off the Silver Ring Thing conference. Moving forward, um, if the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as your own. This is relevant to actually that, but it's relevant into the type of life that might come out of living in a different way. You belong to a different space. The anxieties and drive of the world, 
um, you can pick on the U.S. political system. You can pick on several different other. You can pick on athletics. I mean, we have two very different things there. Did the Broncos win? Did the whichever preferred political party won? Is the anxieties and things that drive the modern world? Are the statutes in Ephesus selling? Going back to earlier in the sermon. To not share in the world's anxiety, to belong to a different place, is to become an object of hatred. And I think if we think about it, that's not the world. Um, what John and Jesus are saying here is more it's, that it's in its own ignorance for not receiving this thing. It it's, looks at you and it sees that you are not engaged in business as usual as it should go. And it does distrust that. Justin Martyr in the early 100s, one of the things he had to write about, a defense of Christianity about, is that they weren't atheists. That they weren't atheists. They go around saying that Christians were atheists because they did not participate in all the systems of, of gods and religion and socioeconomic fears that drove the ancient society, so much so that the one thing they could say about them is they must not believe in God at all. For Christians today, for us to hear these words and to know that we reside in a different place. We call this the non-anxious presence here sometimes, but that we have a different way of being and relating. We have a different sense of time. We know who holds time. So much of the world's anxiety is driven by if it's not tomorrow, then it'll never happen. Um, I've made this joke a hundred times, but, but I, every election I've lived through has been the most important election of all times. That's what they get up and tell you. This election is the most important so far. And I'm like, 10 for 10, it's great. David in 1980 lived through the least important election of all time. That's what they all said, right? They got up and said, this one doesn't matter. Stay home. We've got it under control. Trust us. No, it's always pressing you into anxiety and concern and this in the world. But to not share that, and I've seen this in my own life, to not share that is to find yourself ostracized in some ways, threatened to the state of things as being. Christians are atheists. Now, if I had time, we could think of different ways in which Christians might be atheists in the modern world today to the things that drive us. I've got a lot of opinions on the Silicon Valley Bank that failed, which affects me not at all. Um, see, that's, that's it right there, right? That, that I, I, I can't even practice atheism to something not related to my life. But if we could find ways of inhabiting different spaces and times, and this is, I think, the deep call for that abiding that Jesus was talking about in the previous passage, that's where we might find life. Uh, that's where we might be driven. Um, not all the world hates is good Christianity, but it does always hate good Christianity, always will. Um, this is just one thing for us is so often, like I think it's getting less so today, but we did live in a world where if we could get the world to hate us, we thought we were doing good. That's not always true. Um, sometimes we're just being annoying or trying to cause a fight or this, that, and the other. Um, but the good Christianity will always end up that way. This is the last teaching for today that comes out of this passage. Um, I'll say one other word after this, but this is from St. Augustine about this passage in particular. The world condemned to persecute, the world reconciles suffered persecution. 
the world condemned, persecutes, the world reconciled, suffers persecution. That what's revealed in being drawn out of time of abiding in Christ is that this is a world condemned, that what Jesus says there is that because I've come, the light has shined and the excuses have gone away. That's a world that persecutes. The world reconciled, as we are invited into it, not because we are the reconcilers, but that Christ is the reconciler, is one that suffers persecution. And this is what we're promised and told by Christ, because if it happened to him, who were to think it wouldn't happen to us? So as we end today, there's this last thing about the advocate again, this counselor, this come alongside that he promises us to remind us and teach us about him. Another translation, friend. Jesus has called us friends in this passage as well. We belong in a different place because we're friends with the one who has gone to the Father. As we've heard this word, as we go forth, as we try to live our lives and abide in Christ and welcome that abiding into us, that Christ will be the one who, who in some sense, is part of that grappling of bringing upon us this spirit this advocate, this counselor is the one that will also renew us and teach us and guide us into those paths. As he said in the previous passage, I won't leave you as orphans. As the world comes for us, as we're, we're brought into this reality that Christ has walked, Christ is not leaving us alone, but he's gifted us this counselor, this advocate, this come alongside, this friend, to be with us as we enter into that. Which is why the words of today are not bad news, but good news for us to live in the life and life and the pattern that Christ has given us. Let us pray. God, we have heard your teaching. You are the real vine. You are the true life. And it is your Father that tends to that and your Spirit that teaches us and guides us into that life. May we be a people who hear the good news that we have a true and faithful place to reside, not of our own making, but that has been made for us. So too, may we hear the gift of love in this community in which we are invited into, to be able to, to have that joy and to be able to joyfully lay down some of our own self-rights, our self-righteousness, the fear of serving others, and to be embraced into this pattern in which you lived yourself. And God, may your spirit, your comforter, and your pattern of life come to us as we see that the world guides that as well. We reside in a different spot. The world reconciled suffers for that. But in this way, may we testify, as John and Jesus has said to us, that we would testify as the Spirit testifies to the light and life that we have in you. We ask all this in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.